Well, okay, let's try 1 Corinthians 12, 31. That's the last verse of chapter 12. Our study is in chapter 12. We're doing the last half of chapter 12. That sounds like we're getting close to the end, doesn't it? I've got notes here that end it. All right? Right there, last page for our study. We'll see how far we get. Uh, but here it says in verse 12, or 31 of chapter 12, 1 Corinthians 12, 31, But earnestly desire the greater gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. Heavenly Father, we submit ourselves to your word today. It's your word that changes lives, and we're all recipients of that. You have done such a beautiful thing for us to bring us to understand our need of Christ and to give us the faith that we might today be called children of God, and such we are. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for what you've done to change us. Every time we open this word, there's that opportunity for us to be changed again. Not to be saved again, but to continue to grow into the image of Christ. And that is the road we're on as Christians. Every single verse is important to us, and this is no doubt an important verse too. And I pray that our hearts and our minds will be receptive as we have this book open in front of us, that we would hear what you say, and that we would be quick to respond. Lord, guide us through this. This is, this is not an easy passage, really, but it's a necessary one for all of us. And I pray that you'll bless our time as we spend it in this book. In Jesus' name, amen. And I will show you a still more excellent way. I love that little phrase. There's a place where sermons move from instruction to application. Instruction is necessary. There are some churches where they just say, oh, it's just application. Let's just talk application without instruction. And you could get the wrong application. And there are some churches that just do all instruction and no application. And then you don't know what to do with it. And it just fills your head and not so much your heart. Instruction is necessary. And we've been through a lot of that. There's importance in these things that we have read, it shows us what to do. It shows us how to do it. Nobody in this room builds things or, or does things without reading the instructions, do they? Ah. Application is necessary. The scriptures are full of exhortations for us. To move when we're told to do something. To act upon it. To obey. And honestly, there are no shortages. If you love commandments, there are no shortages of them in the New Testament epistles for us to follow. As we have been studying 1 Corinthians 12 together, our title, as you already know, The Efficient Functioning of the Church. That adverb is very important in that. How we should function and function efficiently. 
God has set it up for us to do this and even told us this is the way to do it. But you know, if you try to do something with the same mechanism your own way, it's not going to be the right way efficiently. You're going to have a lot of challenges. Here's one example. Your car is designed, I think you know this, that you turn the key first or push the button to get the motor to start. Does that sound complicated? Probably not. Go ahead and drive without that procedure. How far are you going to get? You have the same car with the same, same functions in it. But without pushing the right button, it doesn't work right, does it? That's simple. Now, back in the old days, we knew other ways to start a car. <laughs> we didn't need the key, did we? But that's a different story. Um, the efficient functioning of the church. There are facts that we have gleaned from chapter 12 that are very important to understand. And I've categorized these in this way, and I, I've spoke of them several times. So, in a sense, review, but necessary, is part of the instruction. The functioning of the church works best when we understand it's designed by God. This is not our plan. It's not our device. It's not something we have created. It's designed by God. And each member is important in his plan. Each member. Hear the word each? I can say all. That's the same word. Each member has its own unique part to bring to the whole. Every single member of the body of Christ is there for a purpose. God doesn't accidentally save people. Oops, didn't mean to say that one. You know, that's not his way. He saves you for a reason. Do you know that? He puts you in the body of Christ for a reason. So nobody is in there without a reason. They all have a unique part to bring to the whole. That's important for us to know. Each member has the same purpose, though, in the church. Your purpose, my purpose, is to help others mature to the image of Christ. No matter what your gift is. Your gift is to help others mature to the image of Christ. That's my gift, too. That's its purpose. So no member is unimportant or expendable. I like that word. That means toss them out. Disposable. We don't need them. Those kind of words. No member is like that. And it goes on to add, as we studied in this passage, God designed it this way, so there would be no division in the church. That's true. That's the way He designed it. And so the church, as a body, is meant to care for one another. Correct? Yes, it's right there in the text. We've studied through this. Verse number 26 is right there. We're designed to care for one another. We're supposed to be so integrated with one another that when one part hurts, we all should hurt. And when one part is honored, we should all rejoice. That's what it says. So all this to say, you are important, I am important. We all are important. We need each other if we're going to grow into Christ's image. We need each other. God designed it that way. 
And the more we understand this, and the more we operate by it, the more efficient we'll be, become in its functioning. We will do it better. We will do it better. There's a little phrase in Ephesians about how we're trying to be pleasing to the Lord. <laughs> There's room for work here, and I like that. So, that's how chapter 12 boils down. We've been walking through it, and that's the basic thing we have seen. So last week, we began verse 31, as we're starting to put a cap on this, and we looked at uh, this phrase, but earnestly desire the greater gifts. That is not a call to trade in the gift God gave you to find a better one. It's not looking for a better one or a newer model uh, like you do with a car to replace your old one. Rather, it's this, and I tried to explain this. I hope I could say it in one paragraph. The desire we ought to have, and according to this text, it ought to be a very strong desire. Earnestly is the word. Desire. That's intense. We should intensely desire that the gifts that instruct us and guide us into knowing and doing what the church ought to do should be the thing we covet the most. And I use that in a positive way. And I get that from chapter 14, verse 1 and 2 and 3, and so on. That's Paul saying, the better gifts are the ones of prophecy, the ones that show you, tell you what to do. Now, that doesn't mean the rest are unimportant. But chapter 14, we're not going to go that far with the study, but you could read it. It talks about the greater gifts being the gifts that edify. The gifts that build up. And that's what preaching and teaching ought to be doing from God's Word. It should be building up. And in that sense, to the whole, let me say it carefully, to the whole body, it gets preeminence over gifts like helps and miracles and healings because not everyone needs to be healed. Not everyone needs help in one fashion or another. But everyone needs to grow. Is that true? Yes, everyone needs to grow, and as we grow, we learn, and as we learn, we apply God's words, and that means the gifts that benefit the whole for that process of growth is the ones we should earnestly desire, make sure that we have them, want them more and more. We should really, really just be like sponges trying to grab up more, because those are the ones that benefit the whole. Those are the gifts that benefit the whole. And when it comes down to it, folks, I hope it's true of your heart. We should all want desperately to be more like Jesus. We should all want that desire. I hope we do. We are to mature in Christ. And to do that, as verse 31 says, we must want more and more the gifts that benefit us as a church, a whole church, the gifts that help us to function, to function more efficiently, just as God designed. Okay? That's the first part we saw. <laughs> Second part. We cannot let, be left leaving this off our study. And I, sh I show you a still most more excellent way. And you're saying, wait, 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 wait a minute, Paul. You just instructed us and instructed us 
and instructed us throughout this chapter. And the only command in the whole chapter was for us to earnestly desire the more greater gifts. And all of a sudden you say, but there's a better way. Huh? Does that strike you as a little funny? What? Well, he sets before you the congregation, or the, yeah, the congregation of the Corinthians. The essential thing that puts all of the functioning and the efficiency into focus, the thing that some people call the grease for the machinery of the church, is the more excellent way. Of all that's been instructed, in keeping with this context, of all that God designed it to be, He says, you need this. I haven't said it yet, have I? Hang in there. Now, you know it from time to time I reference current issues in the church world in, in our day and age. How they try to redesign what God has made. They modernize things. They let societal and cultural movements be the guide for a successful church in our day and age. I am not old-fashioned, but some think so. I hold to God's Word. <laughs> and I, I want to preach God's Word. And I want to teach God's Word. I firmly believe that what God said, He said. And it's not to be altered. It's not to be changed according to my whim or what I had for dinner last night. It's God's Word. And so when I, I bring these things before you, they're not Pastor Bob's ideas. They're God's instructions. And the best thing we could do, and sometimes I think this is true, is march contrary to our present age. To tell the truth, if we don't look any different from the world, then I would be worried about it. We're supposed to be more like Christ, not like society. The church belongs to God, right? It's His. He made it. He pieced it together as he desired. It functions according to his plan too. It is all bought by the blood of Christ. And then Paul says, and there's a better way. You say, what is that? He is not criticizing what God has said. Rather, he's saying in the nicest terms you could possibly say it to the Corinthians, you're going about this all wrong. We can set the plan in front of you all day long. But when you put it into practice, you do it wrong. There's an element that ought to be guiding you in your behavior toward one another. And you're still lacking it. I'm reading as if Paul's writing to them right now. You're still lacking it. If we were to study the whole book, you would see some of the problems that surface here. They're divided into camps. There's the Peter camp. And there's the Paul camp, and there's the Apollos camp, and then there's the Jesus camp. And I no doubt they all had different t-shirts to match and colors and whatever else. But they all stood up and said, no, I'm a Paul. I'm of Apollos. And they divided into camps. That really works well in church functioning, by the way. You heard my sarcasm, didn't you? That's one of their problems. They stress self. And put that in capital S, by the way. That's what they looked at it as. Self. 
the promotion of their own talents, their speaking ability, their powers, their gifts like tongues. It all stirred up their pride. And they felt pretty good about it. And folks, even if you pass into chapter 5, you'll see they rejoiced in sin. Sin. They rejoiced in it. They tolerated, tolerated the lack of leadership. They adopted the style of the local pagan temple in their services. Would you like to go to the Corinthian Bible Church? It's like, ooh, that's a mess. So, Jesus wrote it off. Forget about that church, right? No. He wrote two of the longest epistles through the Apostle Paul's to this church. Because Jesus loves them. He wasn't going to let them stay that way. And he works in their lives. And he, he kept sending Paul's messages to them. Matter of fact, we actually believe there were four letters written. We have two. God didn't save the other two, probably because they had menus or, or shopping lists or something in them. We don't know. But God says, no, you don't need that one. But he saved these two because this is the way he wanted this church to grow. Now, Paul, he says, there isn't just a different way to go. There is a better way to go. There is a far more exceeding way to go. Hooperbole is the Greek word. I love the sound of it. Hooperbole. We get the word hyperbole from it. You know what that's for? A little exaggerated, right? It's a lot exaggerated. But that's what the word is. Is hoopo is over and bole means to throw. And if you want to picture it, it's an overthrow. The shortstop picks up a ground ball. He throws it to first base. He throws it over the head of the first baseman. He throws it over the walls on the side of the field. It keeps going over the grandstands, above the parking lot, and into the next county. Would you call that an overthrow? Yeah. That's the word you're looking at here. The way God has designed is that far more greater than any other way we could set before the church to operate by. Because this one works. <laughs> the other ones really don't. There's a difference between the world's way of doing things and God's way of doing things. I don't think I, I'm, I could say I'm preaching to the choir, but most of you are in the choir, aren't you? But that's the reality here. The world just, as a, as a whole, just wants to get by, do the mere minimum, but God always goes exceedingly beyond all that we ask and even what we think. That's His way. So understanding that, when Paul starts to paint this picture of what is the far more exceeding way for us to operate, you could expect that this is going to be powerful, right? It's going to be exciting. What is it? What is it that the church needs to function God's way, to be efficient in God's way, to see incredible possibilities that God said can be done in our midst, and we can know it, and we can excel? What is it? First Corinthians 13. Love. Say, oh, oh, I, 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 I've seen that before. We've got that plaque on our wall. Love, 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 love. People use that term very carelessly. We're not going to do that this morning. 
Not when we see what it's designed for. Paul says, I want to display for you the best, excellent way for anything to function. And he picks up his pen and starts to write chapter 13. Chapter 13. We pull that out. We walk away with it. Like I said, we put it on the plaques of our wall. We memorize it in VBS or something like that. We say, oh yeah, love is this, love is that, love is not this, love is not that. And we go through this list and we put it, yeah, we do put it in our weddings, don't we? We put it all over the place because if we want a good definition of love, this is it. Hallmark even puts it on some cards. This is not a random thought in Paul's mind. We use it as if it was suddenly he fell in love or something. Or, or he's writing out a Valentine's card or something. And he's off topic. He's not off topic. The end of verse 12, or chapter 12, verse 31, I will show you a more, a still more excellent way. You have chapter 13 on love, and look at chapter 14, verse 1. Pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts. He just turned around verse 31 the other way. It's the exact same thing. He didn't ever leave his context. And this isn't the first time he brought it up in his epistle either. All the way back to chapter 8, you will find him bringing it up. In chapter 8, in verse 1, 2, and 3. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we all know that we have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant. Love edifies. Hear it? Love edifies. Builds up. If anyone supposes he knows anything... He has not yet known that as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Would you consider love important just by that phrase? Mm-hmm. The application of love is the most excellent way. But I must tell you, it's not the love of the world. It's not the love as the world has fashioned their concept of love and how they know it. It's the love of God. And it is required of you. Did you hear the word required? It's not optional. This love is hard. It's hard. It's because it is a spiritual thing. Anything that's spiritual makes you dependent upon the Holy Spirit. Do you know that? Anything spiritual, you have to trust Him. And by the way, since this is according to God's standard, it has to match His idea of love. Do you know how He loved you? Unconditionally. I love this verse. It changed my life. Romans 5.8 He loved me while I was yet a sinner. <laughs> That's an amazing thing. That's how God loves. That's why 1 Corinthians 13 was written as it is. It goes contrary to worldly love. It goes totally contrary to the Corinthians' typical mode of operation. This chapter was not written for a pretty plaque on your wall. But to show you the manner in which the church and everyone in it sets out to do their part to see it work God's 
way. If we take this out of the equation, we will not have what God designed. He meant for this to be what the way we function. After all, love is a product of the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is? That's the first one. Right away, he brings that up. Love is the right relationship with God. Why do we love? Because he first loved us. <laughs> this isn't our idea. He started it. This is his plan. The love we talk about, folks, listen carefully, is not natural for us. It's not natural for us. We cannot manufacture it. We cannot just say, oh, I think I'll try it today. All right? As if it's something that you will yourself to accomplish. This is God's love. And it's done God's way. As sinners, we do all we can to love ourselves. But God's love is always giving. Giving. Giving, not receiving. That's the word agape. You want to see the difference? I love Greek stuff. I hope you do too. There is a love called eros. That is a very selfish love. A self-centered love. It's give me, 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 give me. Guess what the next word is? Give me. Yes. That's all it wants. Give, give, give. It's one-sided and it's always my way. There is another love you read about in Scripture called phileo love. Phileo love is two ways. That's a, a uh, kind of love that, that you and I work together with. You give, I give. You give, I give. You, reciprocating love. That's also called friendship, by the way. And do you know what? The Bible commends it. Because God designed that. So that we have a two-way street here in love. That's perfectly natural, even in the Christian realm. We're supposed to do that because that's how a body operates. They reciprocate love back and forth. It's in motion. In other words, it's moving. And then there's the one we call agape. Agape is always outward. One-way street. Give, 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 give. That's all it does. That's God's kind of love. That's what you read about when you see this one-way street that leads to sacrifice. And that's what this love is. Sacrifice of self. Sacrifice of promotion. Sacrifice of everything for the good of somebody else. Is that easy? No, it's very hard to do. This is the love that was displayed on a cross called Calvary. This is the love that God demonstrated while we were yet sinners. This is the love that God uses when it says, For God so loved the world. It's an amazing love, folks. And guess what you've been called to? Do it like that. You want to see how a church functions the best? When every single person is trying to love each other as meeting their needs God's way. Wow, is that work, folks? <laughs> that is work. Think of a church, though. Think of a church where each and every member is so wrapped up in the needs of others and focused on the growth of others and willing to sacrifice completely, to see that they become more like Jesus. What kind of church would that be? I would give it a title, an efficient functioning one. 
Because that's the way God designed it. You think I'm making this up today? I hope you don't. But I've been giving you, almost every single week we've been talking through this, a glimpse back into a paragraph in Ephesians 4. You probably know how to turn there by now. You just go like that. And there it is. Nope, not quite. I was close. Ephesians 4, start in verse 11. Ready? This is the great definition passage of how the church should work. Ephesians 4.11. Now, you've got to underline a few things. If you're an underliner, be ready. He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers. Notice those are all particular gifts that edify. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. Until we all attain, that's growth, to the unity of the faith, to the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. That's our standard and that's our goal. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love. You see it? That's the grease for the mechanism. We are to grow up in all aspects into him who is ahead, even Christ, for whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies, according to the working, the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in what? Love. In love. Kenneth Weiss, in his translation there, put the word, in the sphere of love. In other words, these are the boundaries that we operate in. The church ought to be inside that circle all the time. If it's going to function the way God designed it, it needs to work within the sphere of love. What we do, how we do it, when we do it, how we use our gifts, how we minister to one another, it should be outlined by love. God's love. God's standard. You say, okay, whoo, what does that look like? How does it act? Well, when I was thinking through this this morning, I was, I was into Peter. I always end up in Peter somehow. But I was reading along, and in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, let me read this to you. 1 Peter 1, 22. Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. I love that word, fervently. Do you know what that says next to it? Ouch. That's the kind of love that should come out. The kind that goes, ouch, when you're letting it loose. Because that's fervent. That's what he says we should do. It's because of obedience. So, what's it look like? Go back to it with me, 1 Corinthians 13. You ready? This is a quick, a quick view today. Someday we might come back and plow through it deeper. But listen, 13.1. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. You can be as gifted as can be. <laughs> and using your gifts 
Oh, he's got the gifts of languages and men. He can even speak in the language of angels. What is that? That's Greek, by the way. No, maybe not. Um, but you could speak the language of an angel too. But without love, it sounds like a terrible noise. A ministry without love is noisy and annoying. Clanging. Ongoing. Bang, 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 bang. You know that sound where that little thing hits the, the flagpole all day long when the wind is blowing? Does that just about annoy you to death? That's what ministry looks like without love. He says in verse 2, And if I have the gift of prophecy, and I know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, I'm chucking mountains. No, that's not what he says. As to remove mountains and do not have love, I am nothing. All these ministries say, I am somebody. I know, I know all these things. I have faith. I'm strong in my faith. I'm somebody. But without love, I'm nobody. Nobody. And in verse 3, And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, this is a powerful thing. What a sacrifice this is. I, I took all my stuff, I sold it, I got rid of it, and then I threw myself in the fire for self-sacrifice to help you out. But if I do that without love, it profits me nothing. Sacrifice has no value without love. So, verse 4, love is patient. Here's, uh, here's how it works. Love is patient. In Corinthians, you are not. If we had time, I'd go to the passages and show you. But that's the reality of this church. He's going to address every single thing. And whatever he says, they were the exact opposite. Love is patient. Corinthians, you are not patient. Let's just start there for a minute. Impatience seems to be the rule in practice anymore, doesn't it? Patience is macrothumia. Not microthumia. Macro is long. Thumia is wrath. In other words, we're talking about a long fuse, not a short fuse. Patience is working with somebody who isn't doing it right and working with them and working with them and working with them and working with them. It's why love looks like a training program. <laughs> when you're loving in this way, you're training somebody to do something. In a world that expects instant results, God's church is set to grow. That takes time. He could have instantly solved that. When you're saved, you're mature, right? He could have. He didn't. It's not over till we all get to heaven. We can easily carry expectations that everyone ought to line up and march according to my plans immediately. That's called impatience. Oh, how Jesus showed patience with his disciples. Mm. Love is kind. Corinthians, you are not. I always say this is one of the best ingredients in a marriage. Kindness. We think, no, there's so many other things. Be kind to one another. You know how that changes the whole relationship in a hurry when you're kind. 
That's missing in a lot of things. Love is kind, and the Corinthians were not kind. If we're going to operate in a church body that functions correctly, we need to be kind to one another. Love is not jealous. That throws a monkey wrench in every time. Jealousy does. And the Corinthians were jealous. Love does not brag, and it's not arrogant, but the Corinthians were bragging, and they were arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. The Corinthians, I could show you if you wanted to see it, they were acting very contrary to what is right. Love does not seek its own. There's your definition of love. It does not seek its own. It seeks yours, not mine. I don't seek my own. I seek yours. The Corinthians, they sought their own. Love is not provoked. That goes a little bit with patience. But boy, are we quick in our generation to be provoked about anything, everything, all the time. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Chew on that. Whoa! Get rid of your little book, okay? You got a book? Get rid of it. And I say this kindly, but I know a man who had a book. And he kept accounts of wrong suffered. I'm not exaggerating. I saw him pull it out, and he could tell you date and time. That's not love. That's not love. Would you like God to keep track of you that way? You say, but he's God. Oh yeah, and what does he do with your sins? How far away? East to west? Somewhere out in the middle of the ocean? He forgives. How? I can't say it. I don't know. But he does. And I'm glad he does. It's a beautiful thing. Why do Christians think it's okay to do this? We should not do this because it takes into account wrong suffered. We'll always leave a list of why we don't work together. Always. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. Oh, we've got God's word right in front of us here. We are told what's right and what's wrong. We should always rejoice in what's right. And we should always not rejoice in what's wrong. Our world has this upside down. Let's be contrary to that, please. Let's walk contrary to our world. The Corinthians were not. Love rejoices with the truth. With the truth. The Corinthians didn't. Love, listen to this. This is verse 7. It comes heavy. Love bears all things. We choose to bear what we want. Not all. If you want a church that's functioning the right way, we pick up all of it and we walk together. We bear all things. Here's a tough one. Believes all things. Our world doesn't believe anything. You say, oh, that's naive. No, that's not. (laughs) That's not naive because you've measured it by what is right. You've measured it by the truth. You measured it by love. And so whatever comes through, believe it. That's what love does. That's a response to knowing these things. You know it, you believe it. Because it's based on truth. Hopes all things. How quick we write off things. Nope, 
Not going to work. Nope. They'll never work. Nope. 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 And we mark it off. More times than not with people. Hope is love. Hope all things endures all things. Endures. That's being under a heavy weight. I always love this word because I have a picture and I've said it before and some of you remember this, but when when I was a teenager, my dad was working in the church we attended. He was putting up uh, some sort of a tank with the furnace in the basement of the church. There's some sort of boiler system and all, and they needed this tank. And I don't know what the tank does. I don't even understand furnaces. But uh, he needed it in the rafters of the basement. And my dad has a screwdriver in his hand and a handful of screws in this hand and a son who's a teenager. Guess who held the tank? I had to stand there like this the whole time. Do you know how long it takes before the arms start to scream? And what's he saying? Don't stop. Don't stop. Don't stop. And he's using a screwdriver. Hold it up. Hold it up. More times than not, we say, I stop. This verse says, keep it going. Does it hurt? Yes. Keep it going. That's what love does. Keep it going. Keep it going. Keep it going. We want to quit. He says, no. Keep it going. That's what love looks like. I told you this is hard. And you say, but I can't do all that. That's because it's not your love. It's God's love through you. This is not human love. This is, this is not manufactured love. Matter of fact, it's called the greatest when you get to the end of the chapter. These three things abide. Faith, hope, love. But the greatest of these is love. Why? Well, because faith won't be necessary in heaven. <laughs> Once you get there, you see Christ. <laughs> wow. Hope is expectation. And that's what we expect, all our hopes. And then when we get to heaven again, that's realized. And we see it and we say, oh, that's beautiful. My hopes are realized. But love is meant to continue into eternity. Because even in heaven, the church continues to exist. Do you know that? We go there thinking it's all individual stuff, right? I'm in heaven now. I could do whatever I want. It's just about me. No, it's not. Who's the bride of Christ? The church. He didn't finish with the church and say, okay, we made it. Now it doesn't need to exist. No. In heaven, the church is finally completed. It's presented to Christ as his bride. It's meant to be there forever. And it will always show us what God is able to do. And I think we get a good glimpse of this just by looking at the way he does it down here on earth. There's a quote I enjoy, and I've quoted it before, and I'm going to read it to you again, but I I think it fits right here. Hudson Taylor said it. This is not what he said, but this is the point of all that Paul said in these passages that we study today, is that there is a higher standard for us in this world, a higher standard for us to live by. The church is meant to be different in every single way. We're supposed to function God's plan with sacrificial love that puts everyone else first. 
And it's not something we can do on our own abilities. So you and me are both dependent upon the Holy Spirit. Do you see that? We must be. And that's required of us for the sake of the church. And that's why I like this quote. Hudson Taylor said, depend on it. God's work, done in God's way, will never lack God's supply. If you say, I can't do this, <laughs> it's because your focus is around the wrong person. This is God's way. And what a difference it would make if we all embraced that, that more excellent way. That's your instruction, and that's your application, and now it's time to do it. Do it. For His glory. To set before this world that desperately needs to see what a real church looks like. If we leave love out, we're in trouble. You see it. But now let's pray about it. Heavenly Father, these words are in front of us here and they're crystal clear. What else can we do? What else can we say? You have called us to an incredible calling. And as a church body, it's up to us to respond. And I hope that every single heart in this room right now is saying, Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. I will do that. I will do that. It's going to hurt, but I will trust you. It's going to lead me in places I don't want to go, but I will go because of you. I will do what you called me to do. Because I want to love like you love me. Lord, do this in our hearts, we pray today. We need it. Desperately need it if we're going to apply this chapter at all. Do your work in our midst, we pray. For your honor, for your glory, for the sake of your church. Be pleased, Lord, to work in our midst, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.